When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Welcome back to the podcast. To all those who celebrate, we hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving and got to spend time with your family, friends, and loved ones. Today marks the 100th episode of Smart Talk. Whether you're a first-time listener or have been here since the very first episode, we wanted to take a moment to say thank you to our listeners and our subscribers. Without you, the podcast wouldn't be possible. And to celebrate our 100th episode, we wanted to do a special podcast on Henry George and Georgism. It was recorded in November of 2023 by me, Nathan Green, a researcher here at the Henry George School, and Ed Dodson, a longtime faculty member. Ed is an expert on Henry George and all things Georgism. As a longtime subscriber of George, land value taxation, and land use reform, I thought he would be an excellent person to talk to for our centennial episode. Henry George is an important figure in both American and economic history. His life led him to understand the world in a complex way that gave him a unique perspective. With this perspective, George looked to solve ecological and social problems through land rights, welfare, and social justice. This blend of philosophy and economics was the genesis of Georgism, an ideology that his followers believed would solve some of the most pressing issues of the time. George grew up during the Gold Rush and would eventually live through the Gilded Age. This was a time of massive inequality, major reforms, and rapid economic growth. The various places he lived instilled in George the need for greater fairness within society. He had many famous adages, but my personal favorite is, Let no man imagine that he has no influence. Whoever he may be, and wherever he may be placed, the man who thinks becomes a light and a power. George believed that through reflection and critical thinking, everyone can strive towards a better life for themselves and their community. And I think this still rings true today. Henry George passed over a hundred years ago, but many of the problems he lived through still plague us today. Income and wealth inequality have skyrocketed. According to Pew Research, a well-known pollster, between 1983 to 2016, The share of wealth belonging to upper-income households increased from 60% to 79%. Meanwhile, the amount held by middle-income households has been reduced by half, decreasing from 32% to 17%. Even worse, lower-income households only had 4% of wealth in 2016, down from 7% in 1983. Meanwhile, millions of young people, like myself, are shut out of the real estate market and can't afford their first house. I can't help but wonder what Henry George would say if he could see the world today in 2023. A history of George's life, how he formed his ideas, and the movements he inspired may help us parse this out. Mr. Dodson attended Shippensburg University and Temple University, where he received his economics degree. Ed worked for Fannie Mae, a public-private partnership to help distribute home mortgage loans. During his time at Fannie Mae, Mr. Dodson held numerous management and analyst positions within the Housing and Community Development Group, helping to revitalize neighborhoods and local communities. This gives him an interesting perspective on land use and reform and how it can reduce inequality. He also has extensive experience as a history lecturer at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute and the Learning is for Everyone program at Burlington County College. Edward has written many papers on history and the political economy, and is the author of a three-volume book series titled The Discovery of First Principles. Together, we discussed Henry George in the context of economic history, his ideas, and how the Georgia's community can turn back into a movement. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Ed Dodson, thank you for coming on to the podcast today. Well, thanks for the invitation, Nathan. Good well, to be with you. 
<laughs> Thank you for joining us. Um, so today we are celebrating the 100th episode of our podcast. And so for the 100th episode, we wanted to talk about Henry George and everything Georgism. So with that, I was hoping if you could tell me a little bit about the life of Henry George and what was kind of going on at the time of uh, his life and um, what kind of inspired him to think the way he did. Well, George was born in a very uh, interesting period in U.S. history, world history, really, uh, the early 1800s. This was a time of expansion of people across the continent, and uh, the West was being you know, tamed a little bit. Uh, the frontier was still there, um, but the biggest event that occurred in his lifetime early was the discovery of gold in California. So as a very young man, he grew up in Philadelphia. Um, his uh, parents were lower middle class. His father published uh, uh, religious literature. And one of the skills he learned as a very young person was how to typeset. And this became a very valuable skill for him later in his life. So one of the things that attracted him as a teenager was the sea. And so as a young person, he left school uh, and went on a voyage as a cabin boy on a schooner that went basically around the world. And on that trip, he was able to visit places like India, where he saw how people lived that was very different from his experience in the United States at the time, you know, where there was still relative equality of opportunity and, you know, people weren't rich, but everyone seemed to have enough. Everyone had an opportunity to work. Uh, and it was a very positive environment overall. So he comes back from that experience, and eventually the gold is discovered in California, and he decides to get on another ship to go around uh, South America. There was no Panama Canal at the time. And he goes around South America to California, where his original intention is to go into the gold, gold fields. But he is deterred from doing that. He ends up uh, working for a printer, doing doing uh, uh, typesetting. Then he becomes a copy editor and eventually ventures into journalism, becomes a reporter, uh, raises himself up to be an editor of, of the newspaper where he worked, and wow. then goes into partnership with other friends to start their own newspaper in California. And that set him off on a very different track he began to look at the bigger picture of what was going on in the world, and it led him to the beginnings of a study of political economy so that he had a greater understanding. What did the major thinkers uh, come to in terms of how the world was organized? And he began to reach his own conclusions about their the rightness of their analysis. <laughs> and so that that's really what his early life was about. Um uh, I can go on more detail if you want. Sure. Yeah. Well, I was just curious. You mentioned he was a journalist. Uh, what were some of the things he was writing about? Was he already writing about economics or was he talking about uh, some more topical issues? Both. He was writing. Uh, he was writing on topical issues and he was writing about the larger issues. He uh, he was there in California when the major. Uh, commitment was made to link the East and the West with the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Mm -hmm. And so one of his first deep articles is was titled, What the Railroad Will Bring Us. Mm -hmm. And in that analysis, he first came to this conclusion that um, the railroad is going to make some people quite wealthy, but it will make it more difficult for others to make a decent living. Um, and land ownership was the the key to his understanding that those who had control of the land were going to be the beneficiaries of the railroads expansion and bring all the, the new immigration and commerce to the West Coast, which was going to now be much easier than getting on ships to go around South America. So that was one of his early writings, and it led him uh, to eventually write uh, his first book, which was uh, the the. the um, uh, uh, land policy about land policy in the United States was in a major writing, but it did uh, reach an audience in California, and uh, and the next 
thing that he wanted to do was was dig more deeply into these issues. And so um, at the time, he was already involved with uh, democratic policy uh, politics in California, and he had become editor of the Democratic Party newspaper. And so he approached the governor of California. He said, look, he said, I want to do some some heavy duty research into the causes of business cycles and what's you know, what's why is it that our economy is suffering these these problems? And he said, but I need some time to do it, but I need some income. Uh, do you have a position you can place me in that allow me the time to do this? And so they appointed him the um, inspector of gas meters for California. And that basically gave him it wasn't a no show job, but it didn't require 40 hours a week. And so for the next couple of years, he did the research that resulted in the publication of his major book, Progress in Poverty, which analyzed causes of poverty, but also the causes of uh, economic cycles. And that came out in 1879, of course, and uh, in an author's edition. Um, he, he actually set the type for that book himself because a publisher couldn't find a publisher who would will, be willing to do it. But once he set the type and he had basically the author's edition ready, the firm in New York, D. Appleton and Company, agreed to publish the work. And that uh, set him off on the next stage of his life, which was to come east, return east to promote the book. And he kind of came back, came back to uh, Philadelphia and then New York and began doing lectures and, uh, and doing uh, speaking tours to promote the book. And how was it received by the public? Um, were people um, receptive to his ideas? Were there a lot of critics? Yeah. Well, the, uh, the public... Amazingly, it was pretty receptive. The book sold very well. And one reason it sold pretty well is that a newspaper uh, in New York City agreed to serial, serialize the book. And, and then it was, was made available in an inexpensive, uh, what, what would we call a paperback edition. So it was affordable. Whereas most serious books at that time were, were printed on high quality paper and were leather bound, you know, leather, leather brown covers and were too expensive for most uh, ordinary people. So George's book sold very well and, uh, um, and that added to his prestige. Sure. What, what then kicked off, oh, you asked me about critics. Um, he sent a copy to John Stuart Mill and uh, some some sent copies around to some of the, the most, uh, oh, I, I'm wrong. He did not send a copy to John Stuart Mill. Uh, it eventually found its way to his daughter um, who read the book and, and thought that, that her father who had died earlier would have agreed with Henry George on what, on what he wrote. But other uh, political economists at the time uh, began to, to um, uh, review the book. Some of them reviewed it uh, harshly because George challenged the conventional wisdoms of the time mm -hmm. and others were more generous in their reviews of the book. But but what, what then happened for George to set him off on what became an international career is that he was hired by the New York newspaper, The Irish World, to go to uh, Britain and Ireland to cover the, the um, struggles that were going on between the Irish nationalists and the British authorities. Uh, the Irish nationalists led by uh, several individuals. Uh, Michael Davitt was one. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and there were other others who, who were trying to break free from British rule and authority. And the land question in, in, in Ireland was a big issue for, for uh, these reformers. The absentee ownership by, by British lords of, of huge estates in Ireland mm -hmm. and the charging of rack rents uh, to the peasants that had contributed to the Irish famine years of the 1840s and 50s. So George went over to cover this, and he was sending back reports on a fairly regular basis. Um, he was also getting an opportunity to give lectures uh, at various you know, gatherings. Um, and he was arrested by British authorities and put in jail for a day or two. Wow. 
Um, and that was reported back in New York, of course. And so all of a sudden, George becomes a, a public figure, not on the basis of his ideas, but on the basis of the fact that he was challenging British authority. Hmm. And so when he returns to the United States, he's given basically a hero's welcome by the Irish population in New York City. Huh. And, and that sets him off on the next you know, stage of his career, which is you know, more lecturing, beginnings of building a, a social movement with political uh, aspirations, not just in the United States, but in other countries. Wow. I didn't know he was uh, put in jail for a day or two. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> huh. I, I, I think the, the, uh, the charge was that he was a seditious, he had seditious uh, imp intentions or he was a yeah, some sort of a suspicious character. I forget the exact charge. Huh. Wow, that's a that's a very convenient charge to uh, to use against him. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the effect he had outside of the U.S. Um, in a previous podcast with Dr. Alexandra Lau? I know she mentioned that he he inspired a lot of the British labor movement or some other progressive uh, political movements in England. Um, did he did he uh, influence any other uh, excuse me, did he influence any other political movement? Oh, sure. Well, um, George's book was soon uh, translated into German. That was that was the first translation. And eventually it was translated into Spanish and to other, other languages. Um, so the first group of people who were influenced in Britain were among the Fabians, the, the Fabian socialists and um people like oh could you uh could you tell our listeners a little bit about who the fabian socialists were just for those who are who don't know well the Fa the fabians were basically an intellectual group with with again their own political agenda that challenged the status quo in in britain uh and they were a combination of liberals and progressives uh, some were more inclined to embrace uh, social democracy, others democratic socialism, and and so they, you know, their their movement was really a challenge to the status quo in Britain. And some of the members of the Fabians uh, read Henry George's book and embraced his solutions to the land question as it existed in in Great Britain. Um, and there were others. You know, uh, in Britain as well, the liberals uh, in in Britain eventually tended to be the main supporters of Henry George's efforts, and so they began to establish these um, um, leagues, the leagues uh, leagues for the adoption of of the single tax or the adoption of land value taxation. So there were different leagues established around the UK, in Scotland, and in England. And Wales as well, um, and in in Europe, um, there were growing groups of single taxers who had read Henry George's books either in English or in their in the translated language, and so there were groups established in Spain, in France, in Germany. Uh, the German uh, uh, what was called the Bowdoin Reform Movement in Germany, which was the land reform effort in Germany. Their leaders, uh, Michael Florsheim being probably the most prominent, um, embraced Henry George's ideas up to a point. Um, his One of his major uh, uh, converts came in Russia in the form of Leo Tolstoy. You know, Tolstoy basically read uh, Henry George's uh, book in, in German, uh, as I recall. And later on, he... Uh, wrote an introduction to a, um, a Russian version of one of George's books. So Tolstoy became a very firm believer in the single tax and in Henry George's ideas, even going to the extent of, of communicating to the czar that George's path to reform was the only one, only path that would prevent uh, civil unrest and revolution in Russia. Hmm. And of course, um, you know, the czar uh, didn't listen, uh, although there were Russian leaders who 
who who who embraced Henry George's ideas up to a point, um, but not certainly powerful enough to um, have prevented the Russian Revolution. And the Bolsheviks uh, were sympathetic to the Georgist idea of the public collection of the rental value of land. In fact, the Communist Manifesto, written by Marx and Engels, uh, the first provision of it is to to socialize rent. But then the Marxists went a lot further than that in terms of wanting to turn the main sources of production of wealth over to the state or to the communities, where George argued that once the public collection of rent was established, that there was no need, number one, for any further taxation at all. And in fact, he argued that the public collection of rent was not taxation, but it was a fee for benefits received. And so that's where the single tax idea comes in. Uh, another strongly influenced person of George's ideas was the nationalist Chinese leader Sun Yat-sen, who attempted to take some of George's ideas back to China uh, when he went there to try to unify China mm -hmm. and rid China of foreign interventions. Uh, and again, uh, that that effort really didn't didn't win uh, enough favor in the public. And of course, China ended up uh, having a civil war uh, between the nationalists and, and Mao and the communists. Right. And the rest is history, as they say. That's fascinating. I, I never knew that Henry George had an influence on Russian politics. I know under uh, Stolypin and Sergei Vita, who took over after the Tsar, uh, they introduced land reforms. And so I never knew that Henry George had a hand to play in that. That's fascinating. Yeah, well, you know, what I know, I, I, I don't know all the details of, of the Russian land reform, but it was basically to try to turn some of the land over to the serfs. Right. And Tolstoy even did that as an individual. But what he then found is that the once the serfs had, had land ownership, they also began to engage in the same kind of patterns of behavior that the landlords did, that they became landlords. They didn't sure. realize, you know, that 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 land should be viewed as uh, as common as common wealth for the society, and so they they pretty much began to play the same game as the historic you know landlord class had done, and this is true basically in every country. It's true in the United States. Right. You know, uh, I I often say that land speculation is in the DNA of Americans. It began when the first Europeans. Uh, came ashore and has continued ever since. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you mentioned that Henry George was translated into German and he was alive around the same time as everybody's favorite radical, Karl Marx. What did Karl Marx think about Henry George and some of his ideas? Marx's basic uh, analysis of George was that George was simply repeating the same arguments that were, that were made by the English Enlightenment writers and political economists like John Stuart Mill and, and others. So he he really thought that George was sort of the last apologist for capitalism. Hmm. And um, George, on the other hand, uh, did not have access to Marx to much of what Marx wrote because George only did not speak a foreign language. And at the time, Marx hadn't been translated into English. So what he knew of Marx was secondhand. And when Marx died, he actually wrote a very favorable um, you know, uh, remembrance of Marx based on his feeling that Marx, Marx's heart was in the right place in terms of trying to help humanity and get and turn the course of history. Hmm. So, um, and after that, I mean, there, there's this long ongoing relationship uh, between the single taxers uh, both during George's lifetime and, and mm -hmm. in the decades thereafter and the constant debates with socialists and Marxists. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, there's you know, a wealth of, of writing about that 
you know, those debates and those periods. Hmm. Interesting. So let's kind of delve in a little bit more into uh, some of George's ideas. Um, of course, he is most famous for his land value tax. So I just wanted to read a couple quotes from some economists about the land value tax. Paul Samuelson famously said, our ideal society finds it essential to put a rent on land as a way of maximizing the total consumption available to society. Pure land rent is the nature of a surplus, which can be taxed heavily without distorting production incentives or efficiency. Milton Friedman, a famous rightward economist, said there's a sense in which all taxes are antagonistic to free enterprise, and yet we need taxes. So the question is, which are the least bad taxes? In my opinion, the least bad tax is the property tax on the unimproved value of land, the Henry George argument of many, many years ago. And even some more contemporary thinkers, such as Paul Krugman, says, believe it or not, urban economics models actually do suggest that Georgia's taxation would be the right approach, at least to finance city growth. So could you tell us a little bit about what a land value tax is and how it differs from traditional property taxes? Yeah, but let me let me before I go that far, let me first respond to what these economists said. Sure. Um, what they say is accurate, but it's limited because George saw his recommendations as systemic, that they would change the relationship between the factors of production in an economy, between the owners of land, the you know, those who provided labor, and those who own capital goods. Mm-hmm. And he that's why progress in poverty is subtitled you know, an analysis of business depressions, the cause of business depressions. So George saw this as much more uh, of a a change that would result in improved systemic outcomes. And Friedman never saw that. Uh, Samuelson never saw that. And most of the uh, conventional neoclassical economists fail to see that as well. There, there are exceptions uh, throughout, you know, throughout the 20th century. There have been many uh, economists, generally lesser known, you know, less lesser known in the public, who have embraced Georgia's systemic analysis. I would probably put um, former uh, professor of economics at the University of California, Mason Gaffney, at the top of that list. Um, but there, there are others, and today there are a number of economists who are looking more seriously at the systemic value of George's analysis. But to get back to your question about what is land value taxation, um, and this sort of paraphrases what Samuel said, every parcel or tract of land has some potential annual rental value in the market. This rental value is based on the relative superiority of locate one location against other locations. So with the same application of labor and capital goods to a particular location, what amount of wealth can be produced? Well, on the better location, it's going to be greater than on the on less good location. And this could be for agricultural, which was David Ricardo's analysis, or George extended this obviously to urban environments. So, you know, two locations on the same city block may have different levels of advantage to attract people to come to them. And uh, and so that difference with the same input of labor and capital is rent. It is unearned to the owner of the site of the location. And therefore George argued rightfully belongs to the community should be captured to pay for public goods and services. And so uh, building on Ricardo's law of rent, you know, George basically presented this analysis and said, okay, we can't turn the clock back very easily and eliminate the private ownership of nature. So what's the second best alternative? The second best alternative is to allow people to own land, to, to buy and sell the property via deeds, but require that they compensate society for the privilege by the payment of the full potential annual ground rent to the community. Hmm. And he argued in his analysis that uh, if this was done consistently uh, in a society, 
then all other taxation would be unnecessary, unwarranted. And uh, what are some of the benefits of a land value tax compared to, say, a traditional property tax? Well, uh, the the traditional property tax imposes an annual tax burden on the value of whatever improvements exist on the location, at the location. And uh, the way I, I describe its negative impact is you have to think about a building as a depreciating asset. All buildings depreciate over time. And so every year, in order to maintain that building, the owner uh, incurs expenses. And then about every decade or so, those expenses are pretty huge because systems wear out. Right. And so there is a a rationale against the taxation of such depreciating assets because you're imposing additional costs of ownership. And so at some point in the lifetime of that asset, the owner may find that the costs of owning it, including the annual taxes, are greater than whatever revenue that can be produced from that ownership. And so they begin to uh, no longer repair it. You have you know, a loss of maintenance and mm-hmm. the value of it goes down. And eventually uh, the owner might simply abandon it uh, and leave it vacant, which is makes it subject to arson and and uh, you know brings down the whole area when when this is done in certain, any kind of large scale way, which we've seen throughout time in many of our communities. So that's that's the argument against the taxation of property improvements. Um, and if you impose an annual charge on the ownership of land equal to its potential rental value, that means that um, there is no profit opportunity for speculating in land left. In other words, if if uh, you could lease a parcel of land to someone else for, let's say, $10,000 a year, mm-hmm. that's its rental value, and the community charges you $10,000 in a, a ground rent charge or tax, mm-hmm. there's zero net income that can be capitalized into a selling price. So the selling price of land under Georgia's system would fall and could fall very close to zero. (laughs) And and so with with no potential to profit from speculation, the owner of a parcel of land is has all the financial incentive to bring the land to its highest and best use or sell it to someone who will. Hmm. Interesting. And where where did this idea of the land value tax originate? Was it Henry George who thought of it himself? No, uh, I mean, um, you can find you can find this this idea uh, expressed not quite as explicitly, but in the writings of Adam Smith, uh, going back to the Wealth of Nations, and Adam Smith learned it to a degree from the French physiocratic writers um, who were basically his uh, contemporaries, but they introduced the idea of the public capture of of land rent in their writings earlier than Smith. Um, One of the leading physiocratic writers uh, uh, termed the the public collection of rent the impo unique. Mm. And they argued that much as Henry George later argued that if the if the public would collect this impo unique, and that is the full rental value of all the land in France, mm-hmm. that um, other forms of taxation could be eliminated. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and George didn't know about the physiocrats when he wrote Progress and Poverty, but he, you know, was soon learned about it because others said, you know, Henry, this is great, but this is this is already knowledge that we had in Europe from from uh, Francois Quesnay and 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 Robert Jacques Turgot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Turgot had been the finance minister of France, right? Um, and uh, he lost his position for for making uh, two suggestions. One is that the aristocracy should be taxed, and that the church should be taxed. Those ideas didn't go over very well with the establishment. Right. I'm sure. 
So we've talked a lot about the land value tax. Uh, I was curious, what are some of George's other ideas or theories? Uh, was he for protectionism or nationalization of certain industries? Kind of what were some of the other ideas he talked about? Early in his life, as an adult, he thought protection had some value. But at the more he studied the issue of tariffs and quotas and restraints on trade, the more he was convinced uh, that that free trade was the best path to follow. Um, and I think, I think, as I recall, he came to that after listening to one of the um, one of the defenders of protectionism, and he he thought this this argument doesn't make any sense. You know, <laughs> if protectionism makes any sense, we ought to build a fence around our country and not let anyone come in or send us any goods. <laughs> so that led him uh, eventually to write his book, Protection or Free Trade, in which he argued the case against uh, protectionism. Hmm. But what is not always discussed is at the end of this book and his defense of free trade, uh, he, he says at the end, free trade is important, but it's not going to have the benefits people believe it will have unless we deal with the land question. So we, we need to deal with the question of, of the public capture of rent and take it out of private hands. Otherwise, the effects of free trade are only going to benefit the landed interests. Hmm. Interesting. And, and it would contribute to a you know, more intensification of the rentier uh, elite in any society. Hmm. And I think we kind of... And, and his book, by the way, his book, by the way, was... Um, uh, read into the congressional record by one of his supporters in Congress, and uh, that congressman and I guess several others, there were about six of them, as I recall, used their franking privileges to send out, to have printed and mail out a million copies of the book to wow. constituents. Wow. Um, <laughs> and it raised a bit of, of a political debate about about the use of franking privileges <laughs> by congressmen. Wow, a million copies, though. That's quite substantial for the time. Wow. You talked a lot about kind of the problem of land, and I think we kind of see some of those arguments around free trade resurfacing today. Um, I know some other kind of progressive uh, progressives focus on different factors of production. For example, Marx talks a lot about labor. What is it about land that um, interested Henry George, and why did he focus so much on that? Well, um, because he saw firsthand what was happening in California, in San Francisco. He, he he basically said, when I when I arrived in San Francisco, there was basically a job for everyone at decent wages, um, and a decade later, we had people begging in the streets and mansions on, on Knob Hill. Uh, so he, he, he said, how could this possibly happen? And it was the increase in the price of land uh, and the monopolization by, of the land by a small number of people who were responsible in his mind for this you know, dramatic change, this, this, this attack on equality of opportunity and the distribution of income and wealth. So it, I mean, it was his firsthand experience, and and it brought him to to his conclusions. Plus, he, you know, he did all he, he read as much as he could get hold of of what other political economists had written, and certainly what David Ricardo had written was was going to be of 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 a, a major influence on any any thinking that George would have done, because you know it was Ricardo that really developed the law of rent as an analysis of what was happening to agricultural land values and the charging of rent to tenant farmers in, in you know, in, in Britain and Ireland and, and most European countries, very few people farmed land they, they owned. They were tenant farmer, farmers or sharecroppers. And so George, you know, came to a clear understanding that it was the landed elite elite that held all the cards in that game. And I, I think we see a little bit of that resurfacing as well, too, just because a lot of people my age, we are struggling to afford our first home or even buying our first home. Um, 
And I think that's just becoming a very large part of the inequality problem that we see today. Yeah, you're in a tough position uh, unless you have fairly well-to-do parents or grandparents. Right. There, There is this expectation of trillions of dollars of wealth being transferred from gener- from generation down. I mean, to, from my generation, uh, I will be 76 years old in a couple couple months. And certainly my generation and my parents' generation benefited the most by the change in our in our social programs. Uh, you know, for example, the opportunity after the Second World War for many young adults to obtain a college education at very low cost if you were a veteran. And even when I, you know, did my undergraduate work at a state college, um, the cost was very, you know, reasonable. It was easy for me to get through college paying for my tuition and expenses with summer jobs. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to graduate without any debt. How many, how many young people today who are from, you know, middle or even lower middle income households are able to say that? Uh, so, very few, um, unfortunately. So things have really changed, and 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 certainly all you'd have to do to get a sense of how much they've changed is look at the median price of a, a single family detached home in 1965 versus what it is today. Uh, you know that and and then within that you look at what's called the land to total value ratio and so in the in the early 60s for the average residential property the land might have comprised 15% 10 or 15% of the total value whereas today um more likely the same uh property relatively same property might have a land to total value ratio of 40 or even 50%. And in, and and in, you know, some markets like San Francisco or Manhattan, uh, that ratio might be 80 or 85% as well as in second home communities as well, or, you know, in resort areas. So the land cost component has skyrocketed over these decades and that makes it extremely difficult for young adults such as yourself to accumulate the savings uh, toward a down payment and, and, and cover the closing costs to purchase a property. Because if you're not living at home with parents, you're renting an apartment and that apartment is absorbing probably at least half of your, your monthly income. And so how do you save any money you know, when, when that occurs? Unless you basically decide to live with friends, you know, for five or six years, so yeah, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't. I'm, it's not that I find that humorous. It's just, uh, it, it's just the reality, and and I, we need change in social and public policy in order to deal with this. And Henry George's analysis as the basis for change in public policy is the path that we ought to follow if we can only get the political will to do so. Right. I think uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but often it rhymes. And I think we're in very similar circumstances that Henry George faced um, when he was growing up and going through his life. Um, And I think that's kind of a perfect segue to talk about Georgism today. So what are some current Georgist movements or policies that you have seen that really excite you? Well. Um, the expectation within the Georgist community, and that's basically how I describe the people who embrace Henry George's principles today as a community. It's, it's not really large enough to be described as a movement, although it may again become a movement. The peak for the Georgist community as a movement probably occurred in the, uh, early 1920s uh, when when there was actually a national party the single tax party which changed its name in 1928 to the commonwealth land party that ran candidates for congress and for the presidency and 
when the annual conferences of single taxers or Georgists came together, there would be, you know, uh, hundreds of people who would attend and there would be thousands and thousands of others who would be, you know, uh, aware that this conference occurred and that there were political activity. But that really began to suffer attrition uh, during the 1920s and particularly during the Great Depression, hmm. uh, followed by the Second World War and the political aspirations of the followers of Henry George really largely dissipated with the Great Depression. Um, and that's when, in 1932, the uh, leading figures came together and said, we need to do something to uh, bring these ideas we have into the public arena. And the Henry George School of Social Science was established in New York in 1932. And very quickly, uh, extensions were established in most of the major cities in the United States, as well as in the UK, in Australia, in New Zealand, um, uh, in, uh, in other parts of the world as well, Canada, uh, et cetera. Hmm. So, so education and the use of, of education as a mechanism for rebuilding the awareness of George's analysis and, and bringing more adherence into the, into the um, movement was undertaken during that period of time and probably reached its peak of, of, of success in the late uh, 1950s, early 1960s. And why do you think that uh, the appeal of George or Georgism kind of dissipated after the Great Depression? What caused that? Um, well, uh, first of all, was the feeling that capitalism had failed. And what are the alternatives? Well, the alternatives are uh, socialism or fascism. And, and so in, in the United States, the land markets had collapsed through the, in the early part of the 30s. And so the opportunity to collect ground rent via taxation was not felt by even most of its supporters as practical at that point in time. And so, you know, President Roosevelt and his advisors uh, introduced the New Deal. Uh, it's interesting to note that one of his key advisors uh, was Raymond Moley, who was a strong supporter of land value taxation. I wouldn't call him a Georgist, but but he um, supported the idea of of taxing land values at the municipal level, and in fact, you know, later in his life, wrote a number of of articles uh, for Georgist publications. So Moley was there. Uh, perhaps they had conversations, but I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was not going to be able to to deal with the serious problems that existed through what would be considered to be a reform of the property tax at local at the level of local government. So we needed something much bigger and, and that pushed us more toward a society where government played an increasing role in coming up with uh, programs of social welfare and the use of tax policy for the redistribution of wealth. And that was basically the income tax. So introducing a progressive income tax in a way uh, collected a good deal of unearned income so that would be rent derived. Um, and, and it started out that way to be very simple uh, in, in a sense, be a progressive tax. But as we all well experienced over time, special interests managed to get every loophole you can think of passed and adopted so that the real effect of the income tax in the United States turned out to be far less progressive than uh, its first uh, promoters thought it would be. Hmm. Interesting. So I do know that the mayor of Detroit is trying to implement what he calls a split tax, which um, it keeps the property tax that's already there, but it decreases it and adds a land tax. Um, and according to The Economist, about 97% of city homeowners would get an average tax cut of 
while doubling the rate for owners of empty, neglected land. Property taxes would go from 2% to 0.6%, but a land value tax of 11.8% would be implemented. Um, now, we know Detroit has had their fair share of problems, especially within uh, real estate and housing. What impact do you think that this split tax would have for the city of Detroit? And um, is this considered a land value tax or not really? I would cons I would define it as a step in the right direction. And, and so uh, if, um, if the land of the city of New Detroit is properly assessed, then this increase in the rate of taxation will have an impact. It will encourage some owners, particularly owners of land that is contiguous to the center city, to where development already is occurring and where uh, the city has used most of its resources to try to affect a revitalization of Detroit as a, as a urban center. And so the assessment system, if it's working well, will, will provide the financial incentive for those owners of well-located parcels of land to do what I said earlier. Either they will uh, bring it to its highest best use based on what market conditions are, or they will sell it to someone who will. And it's yet to be shown whether or not the rate of taxation is sufficient enough to bring down land prices. And so I think, I think it's a good start. And if the, uh, the mayor and city council of Detroit and the people who are involved in property assessment understand the economics well enough, and they monitor what's going on, then they can, every year, they can adjust the rates accordingly um, and based on what they see in terms of development. I mean, this, at a, at a much more modest level, this is what the capital city of Pennsylvania did beginning in the 1970s. The mayor of Harrisburg back then uh, got wind of this idea, um, and Harrisburg was in a sense, as bad as Detroit is at a lower level. Hmm. The city was rated by uh, by analysts as one of the, the worst cities in the United States. Like I think it was wow. rated the second worst behind East, East St. Louis, uh, uh, Missouri. Wow. And the mayor got the, the, the approval to increase the rate of taxation on land, lower the rate on buildings, and did so gradually. And every time the, the city needed more revenue, it decided to increase the rate of taxation on land values. And over a period of 20 years, the city went through a revitalization. Um, vacant property disappeared. The crime rates went down. The you know, public benefits public amenities that the city was able to provide increased. So my understanding is that today, the uh, rate of taxation on land value, on assessed land values is six times greater than that imposed on building values. Hmm. Now, from a standpoint of someone who embraces Henry George's analysis, I'd like to see the rate on buildings go down to zero. Hmm. But, um, but, uh, we'll see what what the city uh, officials in in Harrisburg do, and there are other communities in Pennsylvania that have moved in this direction similarly, all with good positive outcomes. Meaning that that it's helped to stimulate the uh, economic vitality in those communities to some degree. Are there any lessons from Harrisburg that Detroit could implement when trying to improve this policy? Um. Well, yeah, I don't know the answer to this question, but uh, Harrisburg and Detroit may be similar in that the school district has an independent uh, tax base. And that is a limiting factor on a city like Harrisburg. The in, in, in every state, just about, there are at least four separate taxing authorities that tax real estate values. There's the city, the town, the borough, the county, the, the uh, school district. And so 
if Harrisburg was in a position that all of those taxing jurisdictions used land value taxation, the results would even be more uh, incredible. Hmm. So I don't know what the situation is in Detroit in terms of the school district and the county, uh, whether it has uh, what Philadelphia has, for example, home rule. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the great uh, failures of my own efforts at promoting this idea. You know, I did my best uh, during my working life. I worked in Philadelphia uh, first for a commercial bank and then for Fannie Mae, the mortgage investment firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we tried to convince the city officials in Philadelphia to adopt a two-rate property tax. And uh, even we were able to get the Federal Reserve to hold a two-day public forum on the subject with the newspapers there and public officials there, the assessment people there. Uh-huh. And it seemed like we were going to possibly get legislation, but the opponents were stronger than the proponents. Good. And so Philadelphia, which which has this unique situation of, of having home rule, which means that it's city, county, and school district all have the same tax base, the same tax rates. And so um, if we wanted a best practice example, if Philadelphia would adopt land value taxation, even at a modest level, mm-hmm. the results would be phenomenal in my view. So mm-hmm. Detroit may be the second best opportunity that we have. And I hope that the civic leaders in Detroit see this and will follow through. Well, I know we'll all be watching close, especially here at the Henry George School. Um, I think this is a perfect segue to our last topic for today, which is Henry George and Georgism of the future. So you mentioned that uh, Georgism is much more of a community at the moment, but how in your eyes could we transform this from a community to a movement? Um, I, I think what a number of us have been engaged in is trying to use the uh, internet and social media as a way to reach a larger and larger audience. Certainly what the Henry George School has been doing with the Smart Talk programs uh, and with its various um, Zoom-based educational efforts is is really important and it's reaching a large and larger and larger audience all the time. Um, sister organizations within the Georgia's community, the Robert Schockenbach Foundation is similarly trying to, to do the, the same thing. And it's trying to do it with a much more technical approach by um, supporting those segments of the community that have the technical ability to advise cities and other communities on uh, on what to do about the need to raise revenue via the property tax and how to gradually implement it to benefit your community. So all of these efforts, I think, uh, will eventually have um, some, I won't say groundbreaking, uh, some they're already having beneficial effect. Will they eventually get to the point where there's a large enough number of people that, for example, annual conferences could be re- reestablished where hundreds of people come together, papers are presented, debates mm-hmm. are occur, and the political uh, leadership in those communities starts to begin to embrace Henry George's analysis as the basis for public policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think how long will that take? I don't know. Um, I don't know if I'll still be around. Uh, in my own humble way, I tried to do that with my own online presence. Uh, and uh, all I can say is that that a lot of effort is being tried right now that I think is productive. And we have to keep doing it and do more of it. And slowly but surely, the world, I think, will begin to see that great opportunities were missed when previous generations of leadership in the Georgia's community were not given the kind of uh, respect and consideration they deserved. Hmm. That makes sense. Um, So if 
there was a Henry George party within politics, I'm curious, what would the future of this party be? Is it kind of a single issue party similar to the single tax league, or is it kind of a broader framework of analysis or understanding? Uh, as was Adam Smith, Henry George was a moral philosopher who engaged in economic thinking. And so um, the the closest analogy I can think of in, in the political realm is what happened in Denmark. Denmark formed the Justice Party. And so in my view, uh, any political party that would be created now uh, should follow that lead and, and, and be called the Justice Party. Because we're not just talking about economic justice, we're talking about social and political you know, justice. And there are different ideas about how to achieve those things. Uh, I have my own, which are not original to Henry George, but came to me from, from other thinkers. Um, you know, for example, my, I think my, my, probably my, my most, most radical idea is that we ought to follow what the Greeks started and choose our legislators by lottery. Um, we might be able to get more democracy if we did away with elections and campaigns and fundraising. Um, how would that work? Well, first of all, we need civics education. We need every one of our young people to come out of their formal education of high school with a sound understanding of what their responsibilities are as citizens and what the responsibilities of government is. Uh, with that, then uh, we could have a lottery for those individuals who are willing to serve in a legislative role, either city council, uh, state assembly, uh, all the way up to the US Congress. Have that person pass a what amounts to a civil service examination to determine competency, uh, put your name in the lottery, and if chosen, you went and served for a term of office, and after that, you return to your, your private life. Hmm. Would that achieve greater democracy, uh, a greater, better public policy decisions? Well, it would take the money out of the equation, and that's what a lot of reformers think is the enemy of real democracy, and that is the money that's involved and required to campaign for public office in the United States. Right. So it's just one idea that, and not everyone embraces what I put forward on the table, but it, it's worth debate. And so that's what a political party could do. A political party could establish debates and have a platform. And hopefully the outcome would be a just, uh, a platform that would promote just law, justly enforced. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of the radical democracy movement, and I think that's very important for today. Um, I'm about 25 years old, and so I've seen the influence that big money has on politics. And I I keep hoping somebody will do something to get it out of our uh, government, but um, I can only remain hopeful. So um, we're on our last question here, and I always ask our uh, I always ask our guests the same last question. It's a little bit broad, but if there was one thing about the world uh, big or small, what would you change? I, I would, I would think about an international agreement to eliminate the nation state hmm. and to form a world confederation. Hmm. And within that world confederation, break up the large nation states into much smaller uh, uh, geographies with limited populations uh, subject to international law. And what would that achieve? Well, um, smaller states have less access to the resources, financial, human, and raw materials to build huge military establishments and then engage in wars of territorial conquest against their neighbors. Mm. And certainly it would make it much easier for their neighboring states uh, if someone decided to threaten that state of peace uh, to enforce their will against the uh, oppressor. Mm. So I, 
I think it comes out of uh, an analysis of a different, you know, set of philosophers. Leopold Kor is one of them. He wrote a book called Breakdown of Nations. And, and I think that there's, there's wisdom there. There's a, the one danger I see in that, however, is the fact that our ecological challenges are uh, not limited by any borders whatsoever. So how do we deal with the, the challenges that our behavior has placed on the life of the planet, the, this, our ability to sustain life on this planet? We would have to still have power, you know, really strong international agreements that were, were strictly enforced to get uh, the people in, in every society to do what is required to eliminate the kind of harmful behavior that now exists with regard to the planet. Hmm. That's a very nuanced perspective and a fascinating idea. Um, I'll have to do a little bit of digging into those thinkers you mentioned. But Ed Dodson, thank you very much for your time today. It's been great talking to you about Henry George and Georgism. And um, happy Thanksgiving as well. Same to you, Nathan. Thank you so much for the invitation. I hope that the, uh, the viewers and listeners will get something out of this discussion. I hope so, too. And hopefully we can have you back on sometime. Fair enough. Bye-bye. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.